0: Hi everyone, welcome once again to DAN 1132, another summer edition of the program. I'm Jim Witteveen, happy to be here with you once again, and this is episode 58 of DAN 1132. And in this episode, I'm going to be following up on the content of last week's episode, which was about Matthias de Smet's book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. We talked about the first, the introduction, and the first two chapters of the book last week. So if you haven't listened to or watched last week's episode, I highly recommend that you do that before watching this one, because in that episode, obviously, I talk about the the, the foundation-laying work, really, that he does in the introduction and first two chapters of the book. And obviously, chapters three and four follow up on that. So in chapter three, and I'm going to basically follow the, the same kind of structure that I followed last week, in chapter three uh, is entitled "The Artificial Society," and we spoke about De Smet's idea of the mechanistic worldview that the 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 world is a machine, and that we are ourselves machines uh, as a an end result of the rationalistic scientific worldview that has come into being and developed over the last centuries. So. In this chapter, in chapter 3, he talks about the artificial society, the end result of the application of this mechanistic worldview. What happens when this idea that the universe is a a great machine that that runs along predictable lines, that human beings are machines uh, that are part of this uh, grand, uh, evolved, highly evolved machine, what happens when that becomes the guiding principle in society? And he goes back to Galileo. Galileo uh, did research with pendulum, uh, with uh, the pendulum. And he discovered, or at least he thought he had discovered, that every pendulum works in exactly the same way. But the fact is, it's not entirely true. There are differences. And mathematical certainty is never absolute. And this point becomes extremely important. He says, Galileo's pendulum illustrates a universal law. The logic and rational explanation of a natural phenomenon, however comprehensive it may be, always makes an abstraction of that phenomenon. So there's always going to be a shortfall with abstractions of realities The abstraction is never going to be an exact representation of the truth. We cannot arrive at that exact representation of the truth by means of abstractions, by saying that everything runs according to unchanging universal laws that are exactly the same all the time, that human beings are machines and and act in, in this way and that way, and that the universe runs like a machine, this mechanistic worldview. So he says there's always a difference between artificial and natural products, which shows that this is true. And there's also a difference, a a vast difference, between a virtual existence and reality, and life online and reality. And this, remember, he's working towards, or he's building his argument for to, to, to explain why the uh, impulse towards totalitarianism has become so strong and why the, the totalitarian impulse has had such a, a tremendous influence in our world today so that we're moving in a more and more totalitarian direction. And he speaks about the onla- the online existence. He says, during the coronavirus crisis, the, the online, be, online existence was accelerated. But this, he says, also accelerated burnout and exhaustion to the extent that some now speak of digital depression. So what happens? He cites a workplace leadership expert named Gian Piero Petriglieri. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but uh, that's as good as I can do. Who said this? He said, In digital interactions, our minds are tricked into believing that we are together, but our bodies know that we are not. What's so exhausting about digital conversations is being constantly in the presence of the other's absence. Very, very well put. Very wisely put. We are constantly in the presence of the other's absence. And so we trick our minds into believing that we are in somebody's presence, but we're actually in their absence. And so our bodies realize that. They understand that our minds try to to work with that, but that becomes an exhausting activity to participate in. He says digitalization dehumanizes a conversation. In a digital conversation in which the other is literally kept at a distance but can still be reached, these eternal questions and the associated uncertainty and fear become less acute. The sense of control is far greater. It's easier to selectively show some things and hide others. It's it's easy to pretend to be something that you're not when you're actually when you're online and, and interacting online. In short, people feel psychologically safer and more comfortable behind a digital wall, but Pay a price for it with a loss of connectedness, and Desmet doesn't talk about this here. But we can think about what he says here and apply it in to the decision making that we uh, that has been made over the past couple of years regarding online worship and the suitability of online worship and whether online worship can take the place of in person, physically present worship. And it becomes more and more clear that the idea of online worship simply doesn't work for all of these reasons. We are actually in the absence of each other and not in the presence of each other. Online participation, online communication, online uh, communion. Well, that's kind of an oxymoron because communion is really impossible online. Uh, But all of these things are just... uh, uh, an approximation or or a, uh, a way of, of attempting to recreate reality while not reaching it because reality is so much broader and so much deeper than the virtual world. And so he says something very important in this chapter. He says, life itself can be, be defended only in terms of metaphor and poetry. And again, he doesn't go into... Uh, biblical teaching, but this reminds me of the fact that the vast majority of the Bible is written in prose, and so much of it, and and, uh, and, and so much of its importance, and so much that we uh, that we use regularly, is written in poetry. When we think of the Psalms, for example, and the importance of the Psalms in our life, uh, life can only be defended in terms of metaphor and poetry. Yet these usually sound less loud than the monotonous droning of mechanistic arguments. And he says these trends fit within the broader vision of an ideal society. Institutions that preoccupy themselves with the society of the future, such as the World Economic Forum, consider it a matter of course that the world will move towards a digicosm, a quote-unquote society in which human life is mainly conducted online. Strangely enough, he writes, the 21st century environmental movement is following this trend in lockstep. Insofar as it travels the eco-modernist route, it aims to save nature by protecting it from man. In those terms, living in the countryside is a crime, just like lighting a wood stove and eating a piece of real reed, not lab-printed, meat. Within such logic, the ideal life is spent indoors on an intravenous drip. So that is the, the, the end result or, or what the mechanistic worldview is working towards and how it's being applied by what he calls the eco-modernist movement, the modern environmental movement, which wants to, uh, and, and also the, uh, these organizations of the world's elites, which want to jam people into smart cities, and leave the countryside completely untouched by human hands, so that we have no interaction with the natural world. And so he says, the triumphant music of the mechanistic ideology always contains a discordant note. If we know anything by now, it's that the achieved convenience always comes at a price, and that price usually becomes apparent only after it's too late. And we've seen this before in previous episodes, how we need to think about and seriously consider how what the the implications are of the the scientific developments that we are putting into use in our lives. We're often told about and marketed to marketed to by uh, the corporations which develop these products that they will have. Completely positive impacts on our life. But the downside is too little thought of. And he asks the question, why is mankind so hopelessly seduced by the mechanistic ideology? And his answer is this, partly because it's under the influence of the following illusion that one is able to remove the discomforts of existence without having to question oneself at all. So we want to or society wants to take away the discomforts of this existence. Forget about the questions and the problems and the the really the the eternal realities that that are present in uh, in some form in the life of everyone, which everyone has to deal with, or either suppressing or dealing with uh, in uh, in the way God would have us deal with it, and and seeking uh, our fulfillment in God to all these problems or we're going to seek it somewhere else. But what's happened in the 21st century is that the prospect of an afterlife dwindled in the 20th century already, 19th century, and was readily replaced by belief in an artificially created mechanistic scientific paradise. And he cites Hannah Arendt, who uh, wrote some very good works, including... Uh, A study of Adolf Eichmann uh, and wrote about totalitarianism. Uh, So uh, he says it's here that we, together with Hannah Arendt, situate the undercurrent of totalitarianism, a naive belief that a flawless humanoid being and a utopian society can be produced from scientific knowledge. And as Hannah Arendt states, totalitarianism is ultimately the logical extension. Of a generalized obsession with science, the belief in an artificially created paradise, and to hear more about that, check up, check out the episode that I did uh, quite a while ago on utopianism and on the utopias, because that we see that uh, coming into play, and we see that that being played out in our day and age. So this belief in an artificially created paradise, and then he quotes Hannah Arendt. Science has become an idol that will magically cure the evils of existence and transform the nature of man. So that's chapter three, the artificial society. In chapter four, Matthias de Smet goes on to speak about the immeasurable universe. So im is in uh, parentheses here, uh, here as the title, the immeasurable universe. And so he says in the third, the third chapter we subjected the utopian goal of mechanistic ideology to critical analysis, but in this chapter we focus on the method that that ideology uses to gain and to gather knowledge. So the universe, he writes, is a machine, the components of which are measurable. That's the basic assumption of this ideology. Measurements and calculations form the basis of the mechanistic research methods. And this epistemological point of departure, and epistemological uh, means uh, it's, it's uh, based on how we know things are true. How do you know what you know? And how do you know that what you know is true? Well, that's epistemology. It's a branch of philosophy. So he says, this epistemological point of departure has bearing on the ideology's conception of the ideal society. Ideally, he writes, society is led by expert technocrats who make decisions based on objective numerical data. Now, just a recent example that has come up and and, uh, a study that has been published, and I would like to do an episode on this study specifically to talk about this issue. Uh, The study states that people who take naps are more prone to suffer from high blood pressure and strokes that study, like so many medical studies that are that are being done today, is done on the basis of the numbers. Examining the numbers, collating the numbers, putting the numbers together in charts and graphs, and figuring out by the numbers what's happening to people and what we need to do in order to make things better. Well, Matthias DeSmet says that, that's a problem. Basing everything in measurement and collation of data is problematic. Given the fact that we don't live in a mechanistic universe, he says, until this recent crisis, uh, and since I'm not on YouTube, I can I can name that as the the coronavirus crisis. Uh, societies were not primarily governed on the basis of numerical data; they were guided by stories, first by mythical and religious stories, and later by political stories. But we're no longer governed by stories. We're governed by experts who are crunching the data and making policy, making decrees on the basis of that data. And he says, unlike words, numbers offer an objective basis for transparent and rational decisions. As such, they are an antidote to the abuse of power and absurd horror. Moreover, They offer an opportunity to minimize human suffering. This is the path to the rational society of the future. Data, objectivity, rationality, accuracy, minimization of suffering. So that's the process. We start with data. We use objectivity to measure that data and our rationality, our rational mind. We come to completely accurate conclusions and thereby, by doing all of these things, we can minimize suffering. In this light, he says, the coronavirus could become the crowning achievement of humanity. And if that sounds wrong to you, well, Matthias de Smatt thinks it's wrong too, because he says, at least, that's more or less how the story goes. Obviously, he doesn't buy into it, I don't buy into it, and I don't think you should buy into it either. But he says that numbers have a unique psychological effect on us. They create an almost irresistible illusion of objectivity. They can't be biased, which is further enhanced when numbers are presented visually in charts or graphs. When people see numbers, they believe them to be objects or facts. This illusion blinds people to the nonetheless obvious truth that numbers are always relative and ambiguous, that they are constructed and produced from an ideologically and subjectively shaded Story, talking again about presuppositions, talking about biases that go into the not just the, the, the production of this data, but also especially the evaluation of this data. He continues, at first glance, the numbers seem only true to the facts. Yet, on closer inspection, it becomes clear that they slavishly serve every story. So the numbers are put to use. The data is put to use to serve the overarching narrative, the meta-narrative, or the grand explaining narrative, the accepted truth. And the other truths are, are pushed aside or excluded. But the numbers are put to use to serve that grand narrative. And so he speaks in more detail about what has happened during the uh, coronavirus crisis. And he says, what was surprising is that during the coronavirus crisis, people refused to acknowledge that profit motives played a role and had, any, had an impact on the data. The entire healthcare sector was suddenly graced with quasi-sanctity. It became almost a, a holy thing. This despite the fact that prior to the coronavirus crisis, many people critiqued and complained about the system of for-profit health care and big pharma. And interestingly enough, when we think about the, uh, the artificial dichotomy between the political left and the political right, often that kind of complaining, that kind of protest was brought up by the political left, which during the coronavirus crisis, because of Uh, an infatuation with the numbers, with the data, with the tables and graphs and charts, uh, began to abandon this demonization of big pharma, which was entirely justified. They began to abandon that and began to embrace big pharma as this uh, good, kind-hearted group of, uh, of people and companies that only have our best interests at heart. But he goes on to say that despite this happening, the basic numbers in the coronavirus crisis are not objective data. They are constructed on the basis of subjective assumptions and agreements. Now, when different studies came out during the coronavirus crisis, they were also interpreted within that grand narrative that had been constructed and could not be abandoned, or they were ignored. And Desmet says, you'd expect the public narrative and measures to be adjusted when those numbers came out, in this case, the introduction of a more lean, of more lenient measures as soon as the models they're based on are proven incorrect, beyond doubt. But that's not what happened at all. Neither public health officials nor the population dialed it back. Something caused society to collectively continue reacting in the same frenetic way as if it were acting out a pressing psychological need, which is exactly what was happening. The psychological impact of data uh, as interpreted, as fitting into that descriptive great narrative, which is becomes the accepted reality and so an example of this kind of thinking and this kind of interpretation through presuppositions the lenses of presuppositions is the the data on hospitals and hospital usage and what that data has to say that was in the beginning that was that was the 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 reason given for wanting to flatten the curve to prevent overwhelming the intensive care units and the hospital wards but he says, he says this, the burden on hospitals can be interpreted as proof of the virus's extreme threat, but it can equally be interpreted as a system of inadequate management, progressive reduction of hospital beds, or as a result of declining health, high obesity and diabetes, these things we didn't hear about, or as the result of the coronavirus measures themselves, that is, an influx of anxious people increase in psychosomatic complaints. But the numbers weren't interpreted in that way. And in fact, no additional ICU beds were created during the crisis. There, in fact, were no attempts whatsoever to do so. And that says a lot. And so he speaks about another flaw in this numbers-based approach to the coronavirus crisis. He says, it largely ignored the collateral damage of the measures despite them being a crucial factor. So the collateral damage. What's the damage being done by lockdowns? What's the damage being done by people spending all their time at home and not interacting with others? Uh, what's the psychological damage to children of being masked, having their faces covered? Even even infants not being able to learn from the facial expressions of their parents uh, from birth onwards or, or children at school or having school closed down or all of these things. All of that which caused immeasurable damage but was not included in the statistics because it doesn't fit into that that tight numerical uh, package and it doesn't support the grand narrative. He says, An entire society can completely ignore what is undoubtedly the most basic question in medicine. Are we sure that the cure is not worse than the disease? In the end, when it comes to the dominant narrative and the place of the numbers and the statistics and the graphs and the charts within that great narrative, the dominant narrative, he says, within the dominant narrative, the dominant narrative is always correct. And so as a society, he goes on to say this, we are mesmerized by an endless procession of numbers and never arrive at what really matters an open debate about the subjective and ideological frameworks from which we interpret the numbers. In the end, this point is extremely important, and, uh, and we need to take note of this. Especially as Christians, we need to take note of this, of, of, of how so many Christians have gotten sucked into this worldview and how we should never get sucked into this worldview. He says the real question to be asked, questions to be asked are situated at the ideological level, for instance do we view man as a biochemical machine that has to be technologically monitored and pharmaceutically adjusted or as a being that finds its destination in mystical resonance with the other now i'll comment on that and with the eternal language of nature now as i mentioned in the previous uh previous episode desmet obviously doesn't arrive at the correct conclusion but and he doesn't state it uh, in the way that uh, we would state it from a Christian, in the Christian worldview, with correct worldview. But we find our destination, not in some mystical resonance with the other, but in our relationship, a living relationship with the great other, which is God himself, and in our position within creation. And we don't find our meaning as biochemical machines which need to be technologically monitored and pharmaceutically adjusted. So very important. And Desmet continues by saying, the use of numbers in this crisis makes us barely realize that what we do respond to are not so much the facts, but the stories constructed around the facts. In the end, the, the fanatical belief in the objectivity of measurements and numbers which is typical of the mechanistic ideology, is not only unfounded, it is also dangerous. There arises a kind of mutual reinforcement between subjective biases and numbers. The stronger the biases, the more one selects the numbers that confirm these biases. And the more the numbers confirm the biases, the stronger the biases subsequently become. It's a vicious circle. Applied to the coronavirus crisis, a society saturated with fear And unease selects from the myriad of numbers those that confirm its fear, confirmation bias. The chosen numbers then reinforce that fear. And so he concludes the chapter talking about the mechanistic ideology which aims to institute or or instate a technocratic society that is governed on the base of supposedly objective numerical information and in which subjective preferences and abuse of power are eliminated. And when we think about data, big data, and how data is used, and why data is being collected, and I've spoken about this again in previous episodes of the podcast, and the the importance of this and the importance of us uh, separating ourselves from this collection of data and not, not subjecting ourselves to it, when we think about that, it's, par- it's all part and par- parcel of this desire to institute the technocratic society. And of course, subjective preferences and abuse of power will never be eliminated in this way. He says the naive belief in the object- objectivity of numbers leads in t- to the exact opposite. The dominant ideology repeatedly presents numbers in the mass media that confirm its own narrative, resulting in a largely fictitious reality in which a large part of the population firmly believes, unfortunately and sadly. And what happens? Alternative voices are stigmatized by a veritable ministry of truth, crowded with quote-unquote fact-checkers. Checker Freedom of speech is curtailed by censorship and self-censorship, people's right to self-determination is infringed upon by imposed vaccination, which imposes almost unthinkable social exclusion and segregation upon society. so we move closer and closer to this technocratic, authoritarian, uh, total control society and a totalitarian society, which is one of the results of the, 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 the putting into practice of this mechanistic worldview, which is so very dangerous and which we must first of all be aware of so that we can, uh, in the words of Daniel, Daniel 11 verse 32, stand firm and take action against it. So I'm going to stop here for now. That's chapter three and four of The Psychology of Totalitarianism by Matthias de Smet. And the Lord willing, in the next episode, I'll talk about the next couple of chapters. So I hope you found this helpful, and once again, I do highly recommend this book for those of you uh, who are interested in doing that reading. Uh, as, as I've said before, I, I, I often do the reading so that you don't have to, and a lot of the books that uh, that I've read, I, I, wouldn't recommend or, I either wouldn't recommend or else I would feel sorry for anybody who had to sit down and, and actually read them, but this is one book that uh, I think would be a great addition to anyone's library. So until next time, may God bless you. I hope you're enjoying your summer. If you're on a summer break, uh, I hope you're enjoying your summer break and uh, uh, getting out there and and enjoying God's creation, enjoying God's world. And and, uh, if you're doing your work, I, I hope that's going well as well. May God bless us and may God help us all to be people who know him truly and knowing him to stand firm and to take action. Until next time.